Section 14 of the Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meg Triton. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 3, Chapter 1 through Chapter 2a. Part 3 of the foundation of our judgments concerning our own sentiments and conduct, and of the sense of duty consisting of one section. Chapter 1. Of the principle of self-approbation and of self-disapprobation. In the two foregoing parts of this discourse, I have chiefly considered the origin and foundation of our judgments concerning the sentiments and conduct of others. I come now to consider more particularly the origin of those concerning our own. The principle by which we naturally either approve or disapprove of our own conduct seems to be altogether the same with that by which we exercise the like judgments concerning the character of other people. We either approve or disapprove of the conduct of another man, according as we feel that, when we bring his case home to ourselves, we either can or cannot entirely sympathize with the sentiments and motives which directed it, and, in the same manner, we either approve or disapprove of our own conduct, according as we feel that, when we place ourselves in the situation of another man, and view it, as it were, with his eyes and from his station, we either can or cannot entirely enter into and sympathize with the sentiments and motives which influenced it. We can never survey our own sentiments and motives, we can never form any judgment concerning them, unless we remove ourselves, as it were, from our own natural station, and endeavor to view them as at a certain distance from us. But we can do this in no other way than by endeavoring to view them with the eyes of other people, or as other people are likely to view them. Whatever judgment we can form concerning them, accordingly, must always bear some secret reference, either to what are, or to what, upon a certain condition, would be, or to what we imagine ought to be the judgment of others. We endeavor to examine our own conduct as we imagine any other fair and impartial spectator would examine it. If, upon placing ourselves in his situation, we thoroughly enter into all the passions and motives which influenced it, we approve of it, by sympathy with the approbation of this supposed equitable judge. If otherwise, we enter into his disapprobation and condemn it. Were it possible that a human creature could grow up to manhood in some solitary place, without any communication with his own species, he could no more think of his own character, of the propriety or demerit of his own sentiments and conduct, of the beauty or deformity of his own mind, than of the beauty or deformity of his own face. All these objects which he cannot easily see, which naturally he does not look at, and with regard to which he is provided with no mirror which can present them to his view. Bring him into society, and he is immediately provided with the mirror which he wanted before. It is placed in the countenance and behavior of those he lives with, which always mark when they enter into, and when they disapprove of his sentiments. And it is here that he first views the propriety and impropriety of his own passions, the beauty and deformity of his own mind. To a man who from his birth was a stranger to society, the objects of his passions, the external bodies which either pleased or hurt him, would occupy his whole attention. The passions themselves, the desires or aversions, the joys or sorrows which those objects excited, though of all things the most immediately present to him, could scarce ever be the objects of his thoughts. 
the idea of them could never interest him so much as to call upon his attentive consideration. The consideration of his joy could in him excite no new joy, nor that of his sorrow any new sorrow, though the consideration of the causes of those passions might often excite both. Bring him into society, and all his own passions will immediately become the causes of new passions. He will observe that mankind approve of some and are disgusted by others. He will be elevated in the one case and cast down in the other. His desires and aversions, his joys and sorrows, will now often become the causes of new desires and new aversions, new joys and new sorrows. They will now, therefore, interest him deeply, and often call upon his most attentive consideration. Our first ideas of personal beauty and deformity are drawn from the shape and appearance of others, not from our own. We soon become sensible, however, that others exercise the same criticism upon us. We are pleased when they approve of our figure, and are disobliged when they seem to be disgusted. We become anxious to know how far our appearance deserves either their blame or approbation. We examine our persons limb by limb, and by placing ourselves before a looking-glass, or by some such expedient, endeavor as much as possible to view ourselves at the distance and with the eyes of other people. If, after this examination, we are satisfied with our own appearance, we can more easily support the most disadvantageous judgments of others. If, on the contrary, we are sensible that we are the natural objects of distaste, every appearance of their disapprobation mortifies us beyond all measure. A man who is tolerably handsome will allow you to laugh at any little irregularity in his person, but all such jokes are commonly unsupportable to one who is really deformed. It is evident, however, that we are anxious about our own beauty and deformity only upon account of its effect upon others. If we had no connection with society, we should be altogether indifferent about either. In the same manner, our first moral criticisms are exercised upon the characters and conduct of other people, and we are all very forward to observe how each of these affects us. But we soon learn that other people are equally frank with regard to our own. We become anxious to know how far we deserve their censure or applause, and whether to them we must necessarily appear those agreeable or disagreeable creatures which they represent us. We begin, upon this account, to examine our own passions and conduct, and to consider how these must appear to them by considering how they would appear to us if in their situation. We suppose ourselves the spectators of our own behavior, and endeavor to imagine what effect it would, in this light, produce upon us. This is the only looking-glass by which we can, in some measure, with the eyes of other people, scrutinize the propriety of our own conduct. If in this view it pleases us, we are tolerably satisfied. We can be more indifferent about the applause, and, in some measure, despise the censure of the world, secure that, however misunderstood or misrepresented, we are the natural and proper objects of approbation. On the contrary, if we are doubtful about it, we are often, upon that very account, more anxious to gain their approbation, and, provided we have not already, as they say, shaken hands with infamy, we are altogether distracted at the thoughts of their censure, which then strikes us with double severity. When I endeavor to examine my own conduct, when I endeavor to pass sentence upon it, and either to approve or condemn it, it is evident that, in all such cases, I divide myself, as it were, into two persons, and that I, the examiner and judge, represent a different character from that other I, the person whose conduct is examined into and judged of.
the first is the spectator whose sentiments with regard to my own conduct i endeavour to enter into by placing myself in his situation and by considering how it would appear to me when seen from that particular point of view the second is the agent the person whom i properly call myself and of whose conduct under the character of a spectator i was endeavouring to form some opinion the first is the judge the second the person judged of but that the judge should in every respect be the same with the person judged of is as impossible as that the cause should in every respect be the same with the effect to be amiable and to be meritorious that is to deserve love and to deserve reward are the great characters of virtue and to be odious and punishable of vice but all these characters have an immediate reference to the sentiments of others virtue is not said to be amiable or to be meritorious because it is the object of its own love or of its own gratitude but because it excites those sentiments in other men the consciousness that it is the object of such favorable regards is the source of that inward tranquillity and self-satisfaction with which it is naturally attended as the suspicion of the contrary gives occasion to the torments of vice what so great happiness is to be beloved and to know that we deserve to be beloved what so great misery is to be hated and to know that we deserve to be hated chapter two of the love of praise and of that of praiseworthiness and of the dread of blame and of that of blameworthiness man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of love he naturally dreads not only to be hated but to be hateful or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of hatred he desires not only praise but praiseworthiness or to be that thing which though it should be praised by nobody is however the natural and proper object of praise he dreads not only blame but blameworthiness or to be that thing which though it should be blamed by nobody is however the natural and proper object of blame the love of praiseworthiness is by no means derived altogether from the love of praise those two principles though they resemble one another though they are connected and often blended with one another are yet in many respects distinct and independent of one another the love and admiration which we naturally conceive for those whose character and conduct we approve of necessarily dispose us to desire to become ourselves the objects of the like agreeable sentiments and to be as amiable and as admirable as those whom we love and admire the most emulation the anxious desire that we ourselves should excel is originally founded in our admiration of the excellence of others neither can we be satisfied with being merely admired for what other people are admired we must at least believe ourselves to be admirable for what they are admirable but in order to attain this satisfaction we must become the impartial spectators of our own character and conduct we must endeavor to view them with the eyes of other people or as other people are likely to view them when seen in this light if they appear to us as we wish we are happy and contented but it greatly confirms this happiness and contentment when we find that other people viewing them with those very eyes with which we in imagination only were endeavoring to view them see them precisely in the same light in which we ourselves had seen them their approbation necessarily confirms our own self-approbation their praise necessarily strengthens our own sense of our own praiseworthiness in this case so far as the love of praiseworthiness from being derived altogether from that of praise 
that the love of praise seems, at least in a great measure, to be derived from that of praiseworthiness. The most sincere praise can give little pleasure when it cannot be considered as some sort of proof of praiseworthiness. It is by no means sufficient that, from ignorance or mistake, esteem and admiration should, in some way or other, be bestowed upon us if we are conscious that we do not deserve to be so favorably thought of and that if the truth were known we should be regarded with very different sentiments our satisfaction is far from being complete the man who applauds us either for actions which we did not perform or for motives which had no sort of influence upon our conduct applauds not us but another person we can derive no sort of satisfaction from his praises to us they should be more mortifying than any censure and should perpetually call to our minds the most humbling of all reflections, the reflection of what we ought to be, but what we are not. A woman who paints could derive, one should imagine, but little vanity from the compliments that are paid to her complexion. These, we should expect, ought rather to put her in mind of the sentiments which her real complexion would excite, and mortify her the more by the contrast. To be pleased with such groundless applause is a proof of the most superficial levity and weakness. It is what is properly called vanity, and is the foundation of the most ridiculous and contemptible vices, the vices of affectation and common lying, follies which, if experience did not teach us how common they are, one should imagine the least spark of common sense would save us from. The foolish liar, who endeavors to excite the admiration of the company by the relation of adventures which never had any existence, the important coxcomb, who gives himself airs of rank and distinction which he well knows he has no just pretensions to, are both of them, no doubt, pleased with the applause which they fancy they meet with. But their vanity arises from so gross an illusion of the imagination that it is difficult to conceive how any rational creature should be imposed upon by it. When they place themselves in the situation of those whom they fancy they have deceived, they are struck with the highest admiration for their own persons. They look upon themselves not in that light in which they know they ought to appear to their companions, but in that in which they believe their companions actually look upon them. Their superficial weakness and trivial folly hinder them from ever turning their eyes inwards, or from seeing themselves in that despicable point of view in which their own consciences must tell them that they would appear to everybody, if the real truth should ever come to be known. As ignorant and groundless praise can give no solid joy, no satisfaction that will bear any serious examination, so, on the contrary, it often gives real comfort to reflect that though no praise should actually be bestowed upon us, our conduct, however, has been such as to deserve it, and has been in every respect suitable to those measures and rules by which praise and approbation are naturally and commonly bestowed. We are pleased not only with praise, but with having done what is praiseworthy. We are pleased to think that we have rendered ourselves the natural objects of approbation, though no approbation should ever actually be bestowed upon us, and we are mortified to reflect that we have justly merited the blame of those we live with, though that sentiment should never actually be exerted against us. The man who is conscious to himself that he has exactly observed those measures of conduct which experience informs him are generally agreeable, reflects with satisfaction on the propriety of his own behavior. When he views it in the light in which the impartial spectator would view it, he thoroughly enters into all the motives which influenced it. He looks back upon every part of it with pleasure and approbation, and though mankind should never be acquainted with what he has done, 
he regards himself not so much according to the light in which they actually regard him as according to that in which they would regard him if they were better informed he anticipates the applause and admiration which in this case would be bestowed upon him and he applauds and admires himself by sympathy with sentiments which do not indeed actually take place but which the ignorance of the public alone hinders from taking place which he knows are the natural and ordinary effects of such conduct which his imagination strongly connects with it and which he has acquired a habit of conceiving as something that naturally an impropriety ought to follow from it men have voluntarily thrown away life to acquire after death a renown which they could no longer enjoy their imagination in the meantime anticipated that fame which was in future times to be bestowed upon them those applauses which they were never to hear rung in their ears the thoughts of that admiration whose effects they were never to feel played about their hearts banished from their breasts the strongest of all natural fears and transported them to perform actions which seem almost beyond the reach of human nature but in point of reality there is surely no great difference between that approbation which is not to be bestowed till we can no longer enjoy it and that which indeed is never to be bestowed but which would be bestowed if the world was ever made to understand properly the real circumstances of our behaviour if the one often produces such violent effects we cannot wonder that the other should always be highly regarded nature when she formed man for society endowed him with an original desire to please and an original aversion to offend his brethren she taught him to feel pleasure in their favorable and pain in their unfavorable regard she rendered their approbation most flattering and most agreeable to him for its own sake and their disapprobation most mortifying and most offensive but this desire of the approbation and this aversion to the disapprobation of his brethren would not alone have rendered him fit for that society for which he was made nature accordingly has endowed him not only with a desire of being approved of but with a desire of being what ought to be approved of or of being what he himself approves of in other men the first desire could only have made him wish to appear to be fit for society the second was necessary in order to render him anxious to be really fit the first could only have prompted him to the affectation of virtue and to the concealment of vice the second was necessary in order to inspire him with the real love of virtue and with the real abhorrence of vice in every well-formed mind this second desire seems to be the strongest of the two it is only the weakest and most superficial of mankind who can be much delighted with that praise which they themselves know to be altogether unmerited a weak man may sometimes be pleased with it but a wise man rejects it upon all occasions but though a wise man feels little pleasure from praise where he knows there is no praiseworthiness he often feels the highest in doing what he knows to be praiseworthy though he knows equally well that no praise is ever to be bestowed upon it to obtain the approbation of mankind where no approbation is due can never be an object of any real importance to him to obtain that approbation where it is really due may sometimes be an object of no great importance to him but to be that thing which desires approbation must always be an object of the highest to desire or even to accept of praise where no praise is due can be the effect only of the most contemptible vanity to desire it where it is really due is to desire no more than that a most essential act of justice should be done to us 
the love of just fame, of true glory, even for its own sake, and independent of any advantage which he can derive from it, is not unworthy even of a wise man. He sometimes, however, neglects and even despises it, and he is never more apt to do so than when he has the most perfect assurance of the perfect propriety of every part of his own conduct. His self-approbation, in this case, stands in need of no confirmation from the approbation of other men. It is alone sufficient, and he is contented with it. This self-approbation, if not the only, is at least the principal object about which he can or ought to be anxious. The love of it is the love of virtue. As the love and admiration which we naturally conceive for some characters dispose us to wish to become ourselves the proper objects of such agreeable sentiments, so the hatred and contempt which we as naturally conceive for others dispose us, perhaps still more strongly, to dread the very thought of resembling them in any respect. Neither is it, in this case too, so much the thought of being hated and despicable that we are afraid of, as that of being hateful and despicable. We dread the thought of doing anything which can render us the just and proper objects of the hatred and contempt of our fellow creatures, even though we had the most perfect security that those sentiments were never actually to be exerted against us. The man who has broke through all those measures of conduct, which can alone render him agreeable to mankind, though he should have the most perfect assurance that what he had done was forever to be concealed from every human eye, it is all to no purpose. When he looks back upon it, and views it in the light in which the impartial spectator would view it, he finds that he can enter into none of the motives which influenced it. He is abashed and confounded at the thoughts of it, and necessarily feels a very high degree of that shame which he would be exposed to if his actions should ever come to be generally known. His imagination, in this case too, anticipates the contempt and derision from which nothing saves him but the ignorance of those he lives with. He still feels that he is the natural object of these sentiments, and still trembles at the thought of what he would suffer if they were ever actually exerted against him. But if what he had been guilty of was not merely one of those improprieties which are the objects of simple disapprobation, but one of those enormous crimes which excite detestation and resentment, he could never think of it, as long as he had any sensibility left, without feeling all the agony of horror and remorse, and though he could be assured that no man was ever to know it, and could even bring himself to believe that there was no God to revenge it, he would still feel enough of both these sentiments to embitter the whole of his life. He would still regard himself as the natural object of the hatred and indignation of all his fellow creatures, and, if his heart was not grown callous by the habit of crimes, he could not think without terror and astonishment even of the manner in which mankind would look upon him, of what would be the expression of their countenance and of their eyes if the dreadful truth should ever come to be known. These natural pangs of an affrighted conscience are the demons, the avenging furies, which, in this life, haunt the guilty, which allow them neither quiet nor repose, which often drive them to despair and distraction, from which no assurance of secrecy can protect them, from which no principles of irreligion can entirely deliver them, and from which nothing can free them but the vilest and most abject of all states, a complete insensibility to honor and infamy, to vice and virtue men of the most detestable characters who, in the execution of the most dreadful crimes, had taken their measures so coolly as to avoid even the suspicion of guilt, 
have sometimes been driven by the horror of their situation to discover of their own accord what no human sagacity could ever have investigated by acknowledging their guilt by submitting themselves to the resentment of their offended fellow-citizens and by thus satiating that vengeance of which they were sensible that they had become the proper objects they hoped by their death to reconcile themselves at least in their own imagination to the natural sentiments of mankind to be able to consider themselves as less worthy of hatred and resentment to atone in some measure for their crimes and by thus becoming the objects rather of compassion than of horror if possible to die in peace and with the forgiveness of all their fellow-creatures compared to what they felt before the discovery even the thought of this it seems was happiness in such cases the horror of blameworthiness seems even in persons who cannot be suspected of any extraordinary delicacy or sensibility of character completely to conquer the dread of blame in order to allay that horror in order to pacify in some degree the remorse of their own consciences they voluntarily submitted themselves both to the reproach and to the punishment which they knew were due to their crimes but which at the same time they might easily have avoided they are the most frivolous and superficial of mankind only who can be much delighted with that praise which they themselves know to be altogether unmerited unmerited reproach however is frequently capable of mortifying very severely even men of more than ordinary constancy men of the most ordinary constancy indeed easily learn to despise those foolish tales which are so frequently circulated in society and which from their own absurdity and falsehood never fail to die away in the course of a few weeks or of a few days but an innocent man though of more than ordinary constancy is often not only shocked but most severely mortified by the serious though false imputation of a crime especially when that imputation happens unfortunately to be supported by some circumstances which give it an air of probability he is humbled to find that anybody should think so meanly of his character as to suppose him capable of being guilty of it though perfectly conscious of his own innocence the very imputation seems often even in his own imagination to throw a shadow of disgrace and dishonor upon his character his just indignation too as so very gross an injury which however it may frequently be improper and sometimes even impossible to revenge is itself a very painful sensation there is no greater tormentor of the human breast than violent resentment which cannot be gratified an innocent man brought to the scaffold by the false imputation of an infamous or odious crime suffers the most cruel misfortune which it is possible for innocence to suffer the agony of his mind may in this case frequently be greater than that of those who suffer for the like crimes of which they have been actually guilty profligate criminals such as common thieves and highwaymen have frequently little sense of the baseness of their own conduct and consequently no remorse without troubling themselves about the justice or injustice of the punishment they have always been accustomed to look upon the gibbet as a lot very likely to fall to them when it does fall to them therefore they consider themselves only as not quite so lucky as some of their companions and submit to their fortune without any other uneasiness than what may arise from the fear of death a fear which even by such worthless wretches we frequently see can be so easily and so very completely conquered the innocent man on the contrary over and above the uneasiness which this fear may occasion is tormented by his own indignation at the injustice which has been done to him 
he is struck with horror at the thoughts of the infamy which the punishment may shed upon his memory and foresees with the most exquisite anguish that he is hereafter to be remembered by his dearest friends and relations not with regret and affection but with shame and even with horror for his supposed disgraceful conduct and the shades of death appear to close round him with a darker and more melancholy gloom than naturally belongs to them such fatal accidents for the tranquillity of mankind it is to be hoped happen very rarely in any country but they happen sometimes in all countries even in those where justice is in general very well administered the unfortunate calas a man of much more than ordinary constancy broke upon the wheel and burnt at the loose for the supposed murder of his own son of which he was perfectly innocent seemed with his last breath to deprecate not so much the cruelty of the punishment as the disgrace which the imputation might bring upon his memory after he had been broke and was just going to be thrown into the fire the monk who attended the execution exhorted him to confess the crime for which he had been condemned my father said calas can you yourself bring yourself to believe that i am guilty to persons in such unfortunate circumstances that humble philosophy which confines its views to this life can afford perhaps but little consolation everything that could render either life or death respectable is taken from them they are condemned to death and to everlasting infamy religion can alone afford them any effectual comfort she alone can tell them that it is of little importance what man may think of their conduct while the all-seeing judge of the world approves of it she alone can present to them the view of another world a view of more candor humanity and justice than the present where their innocence is in due time to be declared and their virtue to be finally rewarded and the same great principle which can alone strike terror into triumphant vice affords the only effectual consolation to disgraced and insulted innocence in smaller offences as well as in greater crimes it frequently happens that a person of sensibility is much more hurt by the unjust imputation than the real criminal is by the actual guilt a woman of gallantry laughs even at the well-founded surmises which are circulated concerning her conduct the worst-founded surmise of the same kind is a mortal stab to an innocent virgin the person who is deliberately guilty of a disgraceful action we may lay it down i believe as a general rule can seldom have much sense of the disgrace and the person who is habitually guilty of it can scarce ever have any End of section fourteen.